Hello, this is Jeff Till with 500years.org. In May of 2015, I had the rare pleasure of being interviewed on the School Sucks Project on Brett Vinat's podcast. I'm a super fan of his show, and I've watched, uh, or listened to rather, about 200 episodes. So it was really a thrill to be asked on. He asked me on to discuss my 54 cases for homeschooling and arguments against public education. I thought we had a really good conversation, and I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from it. So anyway, check it out, and it's in two parts. This first one, I have an introduction that I'm doing right now. The second one, I'm just going to leave it as it was, uh, straight as if it was coming from School Sucks Project. Uh, you can check out Brett's work at schoolsucksproject.com. It's great stuff. Thanks. Welcome to the School Sucks Project a podcast, YouTube channel, and an online community dedicated to personal growth and intellectual self-defense. We promote learning alternatives, home education, critical thinking, peaceful parenting, organization and productivity, and better communication strategies. Please remember to visit schoolsucksproject.com for comprehensive show notes, infographics, relevant links, book suggestions, or to just leave comments. Follow us on Twitter at School Sucks Show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, username School Sucks Podcast, and get involved in our Facebook group. Just search for School Sucks Project. And here's Brett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today is May 19th. I am Brett. This is School Sucks Podcast, episode 351. So what's new, huh? It's been a couple of weeks. In the last show, I told you I was getting ready to do what I would describe as a small move, you know, less than an eighth of a mile away to uh, a bigger place where I could build the audio and video production space I've always dreamed about. And guess what happened next? I did it. So that is done. If you're in our Facebook group, you can go there and check out pictures of the whole process and the finished product. Of course, if you're not in our Facebook group, only a fraction of our listeners are, go to YouTube, our username School Sucks Podcast, and I'm going to be posting video clips, hopefully, from just about every show we do from now on, so you can take a look at the studio there. So yeah, feeling pretty accomplished and glad to be back doing productions. We've got a lot of stuff coming up over the course of the next month. Lots of familiar faces, some new faces, new topics, and maybe even some controversy. On the podcast today, a business owner, school sucks listener, and home educating parent named Jeff Till, who recently prepared a piece for his blog called The Complete Case for Home Education, which includes 54 Arguments. We decided to cover 12 of these 54 arguments over the course of the next two shows. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this, and I look forward to your feedback. Here we go. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Hi, Brett. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to have you. And you recently yeah. prepared... Uh, a pretty comprehensive list, what you call the complete case for home education. And uh, that's something that I wanted to preview over the next two episodes of School Sucks Podcast. I searched through it and I looked for some of your 54 reasons that we hadn't really uh, touched on too much on School Sucks in the past, or perhaps some that were worth reviewing. And uh, I picked 12. 
that we could go over together. The uh, the first question I wanted to ask you is what inspired you to take on this uh, this important project? In the very sort of short, selfish term, uh, I wanted to start contributing to the the public intellectual conversation on libertarianism, and particularly in areas you know that are very personal, such as schooling and and work. Right. And you know, instead of just uh, just consuming from the trough, I, I wanted to start uh, being part of the the talk. Um, from, from a longer perspective, uh, you know, I've, I've been a, a libertarian for about 15 years. And in the last uh, three years, sort of like in the post uh, Ron Paul uh, time frame, I've, you know, sort of become post-political, sure. um, you know, embracing anarchism and atheism and peaceful parenting and, and sort of turning the whole focus on looking inward uh, to things that I can actually affect. Despite this, uh, when my you know, my, my children, I have three kids, uh, a four-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old. And when they become school-aged, um, I automatically, without thinking, uh, sent them to pub- the public school that was closest to my house. Sure. Um, and this was despite, you know, being very well-armed with, you know, just books upon books upon podcasts of information uh, informing me otherwise. And um, sort of sensing this this contradiction um, in behavior and thought, I really started to study home education. So I, I started uh, steeping myself in, you know, John Tillergato and John Holt and Grace Llewellyn and Peter Gray and, you know, anything I could get my hands on. And uh, oddly, I never found your podcast through this whole process, um, which is, <laughs> I, you know, I guess uh, my Google skills just weren't quite, quite up to snuff. So through that, I eventually did come to the conclusion that I had to take my kids out of school, and I finally did do it. And it, this will actually be a nice segue to the first one we're going to discuss, because it was when I actually uh, applied the idea that uh, that when I do this to myself, when I send myself somewhere that made people unhappy, like school does, uh, I finally realized that I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, with good heart, send them anymore. Sure, absolutely. Um, so. So it just the the whole case, the 54 reasons, uh, was my exercise to get everything I learned down on paper, and to even sort of um, sort of stretch the exercise into some places where I hadn't heard before. Yeah. And some of the, some of them which are, are pretty important because when you um, like when you use just the the arguments uh, against uh, conformity, uh, apathy, and uh, obedience, you know some people don't take that to heart, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just the water that they're in. Sure. Yeah. But if you say, well, school makes people unhappy, um, you know, the kids hate it. Would you do that? You know, that can really sort of, uh, put them in a new place, uh, usually a pretty uncomfortable place. Um, that's usually when they want to, you know, either spit on you or punch you in the face. If yeah. They have kids themselves. Yeah. And that's a tough place to be in, which is why having a comprehensive list that you can hand to people or hand to a person all at once is uh, potentially very valuable. Yeah, I, I think so. And interestingly, my, my first draft of this had the, the lessons of school as the very first argument. Sure. And... Uh, at that point, I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose my audience if I start there. Um, and so I moved it, you know, the arguments for like knowledge type uh, arguments and then for, uh, you know, feelings and, and personal life and moved all of those sort of uh, more, more scary arguments towards the end. Yeah, I'm looking at the list right now. You have a blog called 500years.org. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wanted to say another reason why I did this list is I was launching my blog and uh, I've seen a lot of blogs come and go, uh, you know, with very sort of ordinary 
um, or lackluster results. And I wanted to launch it with an asset that could have a life that was a little bit longer than the average like article. Sure. So the, the, the comprehensive case um, is that sort of launch piece that I think even if, even if I uh, sort of drop the ball and never write anything again, that this could still have legs going forward. Yeah. Um, the way it starts, too, is, is very interesting, right? It's what school is supposed to be all about. The first argument is the, the argument for knowledge. While we don't want to be overly confrontational uh, with people, that's an important thing to be confronted with, isn't it? Is this really a place where knowledge is disseminated in a meaningful and lasting way? And I yeah. think that you lay out the case there uh, beautifully, and that's a nice running start into perhaps some more challenging arguments. Yeah, I think that's – there's also a personal experience everyone has with knowledge in school. Because mm. um, when you first tell people you're homeschooling, they almost – some people want to almost like test your kids. Right. And it's like, uh, well, do they know the capital state capitals? <laughs> and it's like, why, why would you want to know that? You know, it, it's both useless and uh, and un, unpleasurable. And you go through everything that you learn, and it's almost it becomes this running joke. You know, when people talk about how much uh, calculus they use every day, yeah, um, or how you know how much people really like you know Shakespeare. You know, that's actually a pretty. I think a minority of people who actually enjoy, uh, you know, plays they can barely understand. I'm not in that minority. I've railed against Shakespeare for years <laughs> on my show. Yeah. So, I mean, and it just goes on and on. And then, then there's all, you know, all these wonderful topics that you learn later, like, you know, Austrian economics or, or ethics, um, you know, that, that, that are just absolutely fascinating. And they're completely withheld from kids at school. Sure. Even though they, they then go into um, ridiculous detail into like science and math. I make the case or I make the argument that really as much math as you need is to buy uh, carpeting for your home. You know, you need to be able to cal calculate square footage and then you need to be able to multiply it to see how much you need. And then you need to get through the cash register unscathed. But, you know, the um, the amount of math they teach, it just is, you know, just goes on and on and on, you know, for years and years. It's almost like they they knew they had uh, 13 years to fill up uh, to have a math course every year. And so they just had to keep on, you know, piling on, you know, more and more useless uh, knowledge there. You don't find math, though. I mean, this is the because uh, I was a high school math teacher at one point. There was two years where I taught two high school math classes each year. Uh, mm -hmm. The best justification I could come up with is, hey, it's you know, it's good exercise for the brain. Uh, it's yeah. like it's like kind of a conditioning routine for the brain, maybe for uh, being sharper in other subjects. There is, I will agree with you though, that there is looking at a typical college prep high school curriculum overkill in math, considering how much is ignored in some other areas like literature and history, of course. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. But you know, the, the sort of the schooling process with math, I don't think uh, creates a love of it. Mm -hmm. And so even though there, there might be some people who would, you know, absolutely thrilled with the topic who are probably turned off from it. And yeah. then there are probably people who, you know, it's not their thing, but then they're they're inflicted with it anyways, you know, almost to the point of torture. Well, yeah, that's true, because as I was listening to myself say it's this mental treadmill, you know, it is going to relate to the first argument because, yeah, you could say that if somebody has... Um, you know, a goal of losing weight or not a, maybe a specific goal, but a desire to lose weight, you don't throw them on a treadmill and just reassure them that it's good for them. That has to be kind of a team effort. 
So there is that problem with math too. And the reason why I had to come up with this answer is that it's valuable mental exercise is that kids were always asking me, why the hell do we have to do this? Right. And that was the best answer I could come up with after not having a good answer. Uh, the first couple dozen times it was asked. So, yeah. Well, and of course you couldn't tell the real answer, which is, you know, because you have to, uh, yes. Be, yeah. You know, because the government, uh, you know, will, you know, send people to your house if you don't show up and learn this stuff. Well, yeah. But in the early days of my career, I was a, because I said so, or I did that, <laughs> yeah. you know, it took a while to learn my way out of that for sure. That's a nice segue into uh, the first argument that we're going to talk about. I just pulled out of the list, and you did too, and then we put our two lists mm -hmm. together to uh, produce uh, 12 that we wanted to talk about on the show. Uh, the first one is the argument for happiness and empathy. And I just wanted to read what you wrote about it, and then okay. I thought maybe we could talk about it a little bit. You could share your experiences with this one as a home-educating parent, and then I can add a little more before we move on to the next one. Okay, that sounds great. Great. So you wrote, school makes many, if not most kids, unhappy. They don't like most of their schoolwork. They don't like being told what to do every second of the day. They don't like having to be part of cliques or getting bullied. They don't like taking tests. They don't like getting grades. They hate homework. Getting up early stinks. The bus sucks. So does the food. Sometimes parents hate school too. They hate the schedule it imposes. They hate watching their kids experience the pressure, either of the schoolwork or the social scene. Why is something imposed that makes children unhappy, especially for 15,000 hours during what should be a person's happiest years? Would you want to be unhappy? Would you want to purposely inflict unhappiness on yourself? Have a little empathy for the children. Feel what they feel in going to school. Don't send them somewhere they are near guaranteed to be unhappy. So, yeah, you want to relate that to your own experience? I, I, I wonder, too, like when you already understood the philosophy of liberty, but you made this initial decision to send your children to public school, was it, was it circumstance? Uh, was it just maybe having a couple of blind spots in that particular area? Well, I mean, it, it didn't feel like there, there was an alternative. It wasn't circumstance. Um, I work from home. I, I make a lot of money. Uh, my wife is a full-time mom. Um, you know, we, we have all the resources in the world to make it happen. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to have two, two parents going to work. But it was just, you know, everyone in the community. I went to public school. Everyone in the community went to public school. Um, you know, my parents, uh, my wife's parents, you know, expected it. And the idea of homeschooling was just plain crazy talk. You know, it was something that, um, you know, uh, crazy people did in the Midwest, you know, while making their quilts and uh, praying to Jesus. Yeah, sure. Um, it was so automatic and so ingrained in me that even though I knew the whole case, I, I just couldn't reverse out of it. Um, but the final, the final thing that finally snapped uh, was I was in this very um, anxious state. My mother had just passed away, and I had just sold my house after having it on the market for two years uh, to move across country. And my whole, when you're in kind of a really severe uh, emotional state, your, your sense of risk and uh, uh, sense of decision-making really changes. And yeah. that's when I finally realized that if, if, if I had to send myself to school, I wouldn't do it because it would make me unhappy and I wouldn't send my wife to school. And 
with that in mind, how could I, how dare I send my children to school, you know, where they were going to, you know, spend an hour on the bus and then have to sit in a desk in a straight line and raise their hand to go to the bathroom for all of this time, for this massive amount of time that, that equals about the same as uh, uh, an adult uh, work week. Yeah. And what was funny is even when I, um, I was nervous when I was about to tell my kids that they didn't have to go to school anymore. And, um, you know, whether they would be upset or be confused. And, you know, they never thought it was an option. It never dawned on them that maybe they didn't have to go. And, you know, their eyes just widened to saucers. And they were like, really? And I'm like, yeah, you're staying home. We're going to stay home and play, you know. And, um, you know, they just were absolutely delighted. Uh, my my seven-year-old son, especially. Uh, he was in kindergarten at the time. So yeah, that was that was that was the argument that did it for me. That 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 really made it personal was when I I realized that I'd had empathy for my children. And yeah. That almost sounds it almost sounds monstrous to think of who wouldn't do this. D does that make sense? Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. What kind of terrible parent wouldn't have empathy for their own children? And yet that's sort of the the state of nature that we live in. Sure. And that's not to say, I mean, I've talked with parents who are totally on board with what we're saying and they say, hey, you know, my daughter turned 14 and she wanted to go to school. So I said, OK, you know, try school for a year if you want. And uh, that's understandable, too. But I think a lot of people get caught in this resignation where it's like, yeah, I wish there was another way, but it just doesn't seem and they kind of give up right there and not yeah. seeing not seeing that there there is another way. And this is becoming, you know, easier than ever because of the way people are, are networking now and these homeschooled networks or home education networks are being created around common interests. And, you know, it's interesting when, when I was getting ready to talk about this with you, I realized it's been a while since we've talked about the irrelevance of school on School Sucks, mm -hmm. right? I feel like it's been covered. But every time we revisit this subject, school, just by the simple passage of time, has grown even more irrelevant. Yeah. This is the only chance kids are gonna have. So I have encouraged people to try to push through that resignation. I understand, you know, I have two brothers, they have kids, they go to school. I understand it's it's terribly, terribly difficult, but this is just one of 54 arguments, and I think it's a it's a really, really powerful one. School is in many ways anti-happiness because it is preparation for real life, you know, for the real world. And yeah. the message yeah. always seems to be, you know, happiness is deferred. Now is not the time to be happy. You will be rewarded later for sacrificing now. And people, you know, they wait for graduation from high school and then they wait for graduation from college and then they wait for the perfect job and then they wait for the weekend and then they wait for vacation and then they wait for retirement. Right. So there's people are in the real world are always waiting. But happiness for so many too many always seems to be deferred. And I think, too, you know, the other part of that was was empathy uh, mm -hmm. with empathy and understanding comes an important question regarding the learner. And that is, is their willingness? You know, and the next one we're going to talk about is exposure. And there's this pro-school argument that, well, school is a place where they're exposed to this wide array of subjects, and that might be true. But if there's no willingness, that doesn't really matter much. You know, I mean, you could hand all of the, the, the most 
life-enriching English language books to a person, but if they're blind and they only speak Chinese or even one or the other, uh, that's a waste of time in books. So mm -hmm. being connected to a child, understanding what their needs are, uh, not just emotionally, but also as a learner, I think helps a parent or um, any kind of a mentor recognize if there's a willingness or not. And the willingness needs to be there for meaningful, lasting learning to take place. Otherwise, school is just wasting people's time. Yeah, I agree. The um, It's funny, the one reaction I got to the, uh, the argument for happiness, and it was it was uh, right on my the first commenter on my new blog, made the sort of the common case that children need to be trained to be miserable uh, because, you know, work is going to be work is going to be tedious and miserable. And it, it might be just the opposite. Maybe maybe work is tedious and miserable uh, because they were trained to be miserable. You know, maybe maybe that's that's part of why uh, there's maybe so little joy in in the work life and everyone has to you know look forward to the weekend or to vacation. Well, that's carrots know. and sticks too, right? Like we're just yeah. chasing the carrots, which is grades and then uh, a paycheck, you know? And we see it in the state. We see it in the way most families work. Carrots and sticks, those are the only two choices that anybody knows about. So you're either, you know, you're chasing carrots and avoiding sticks and that's life, you know? And part of chasing the carrots is miserable. Part of avoiding the sticks is stressful and frustrating. But, you know, you had 15,000 hours of training in, uh, you know, that paradigm. So why would life be any different? School is great preparation for citizenship in the, in the work world. And you said that somebody actually left that comment on the blog? Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but yeah, it was like, well, we still need school because we need to teach people how to, uh, you know, be, you know, have work the tedious uh the, the, the tedious work day. I'm pulling it up. I got to see this. All right. So it's a, it's a long comment. So in the second paragraph, the person says, further, like it or not, school is a microcosm of what most of us do on a daily basis. We define our presence by a regimented pattern of actions repeated over and over again. I would think that your argument is that homeschooling uh, may very well help break this pattern, and I agree that there's validity to that argument. However, to some extent, the capacity for you to homeschool is related to a very efficient use of the capital resources developed by people who are primarily involved in this school-like day-to-day drudgery. I don't think that it's all that fun to admit, but school is meant to prepare you for the working world, as mindless and contemptuous as it might be. Dang. Yeah, I mean, he, you could read that and, and either... Um think it was a parody of you know the article or or it's actually really insightful but it's the the, the bad part about it is that he uh, agrees that that that's the what the necessary reality is that's and the resignation yeah it, it does he doesn't read that and, and be repulsed which is what i you know that's what my reaction now you know even if if i'm mispreparing them to be miserable later uh we're guaranteed joy now um if that makes sense sure yeah, and I, I I think they're gonna be my kid, I'm talking about my children. I, I think they're going to be uh, you know hopefully joyous uh, adults who who won't put up with uh, tediousness. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that school obviously is going to leave people with a very high tolerance for tedium and boredom. Yeah, what's that's that's what it's made for. Right. So you want to move on so, to the second one? 
Sure, let's do that. All right. So the argument for exposure. Some proponents of schooling insist that school exposes children to a broad array of subjects that they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. But school really just teaches five to seven subjects when there are actually thousands in the world. Even if we were to hone in on something school focuses on, like literature, the nation's schools essentially limit exposure to the same dozen books regardless of a child's interest, despite there being millions of books in the world. Sure, there is a library at the school, but when do they get to go? And books are just one kind of media, only favored through school's history because it was the only one available in the pre-modern world when school was invented. An open, free-range education gives children the time to explore any subject they desire and inflicts no one-size-fits-all curriculum. Home-educated children not only can be exposed to a wider array of subjects, they can be exposed precisely to the ones they find interesting or useful. You know, just to go back to the, to the first one, uh, empathy and happiness, and I was talking about having empathy and being connected to a child helps you gauge... Uh, his or her willingness mm -hmm. for um, a learning endeavor. And I do wonder if exposure can create that willingness, but it's not like in school they're saying, oh, we just want to show you things, right? They're not saying that. They're saying you yeah. will do this. And that immediately, uh, for, for many kids, I'm not saying it's true across the board, erases any joy that could have been there. Yeah, I think this is a really important one, and it goes back to what I also said about every time we tackle this subject again, school is more irrelevant than it was six months ago. I mean, I remember tutoring like five years ago and talking to kids about doing research for projects or how they use the internet, mostly for like SAT, uh, essay prep type questions, mm -hmm. and just how closed off the world of information seemed at the time, like Wikipedia was this forbidden site and that's all changed, you know? Yeah, school is, uh, you, you know, you compared it to a full-time job. I was working with um, some pretty competitive school districts when I was tutoring in Massachusetts. For those kids, it was a 50 plus hour a week uh, commitment as early as middle school. And yeah, does, it, does that include the commute? Uh, oh, my goodness. And they were commuting in Massachusetts. So maybe 60 plus hours a week for some of them. Yeah, I found out my daughter was, uh, our school was only about four, four miles away, but they were on the bus for an hour in the morning. Yeah. Because it's between the stops and then with the kids who got free breakfast in the morning, they would leave all of the other kids on the bus and then the free breakfast kids would go get off the bus, go have breakfast, and then they would let everybody off the bus. Uh, anyway, sorry. Kind yeah, of, I, mean, I remember getting on the bus at like shortly after seven and getting home after three. So that was like with transportation, school was an eight hour commitment right there. But then there was homework, you know, and these uh, these teenagers that I was working with, they were talking about having like three hours of homework a night. So that's an extra 15 hours a week. So uh, for the college track, for most uh, young people, it's easily a 50 hour a week commitment. And yeah, I guess you could say there's a fairly broad array of subjects presented in school, but compared to what's actually available, it's a tremendous opportunity cost. And um, now with Common Core, it seems like there's this increased fight against the uh, free flow of information or, or just information that's been kind of tested by time, like especially, or, or not just information, but 
educational experiences, like literature, for example, is basically yeah. being stripped out of the schools. Uh, I actually, before uh, we go to your experience here, I actually found an article on the uh, the Huffington Post. I just wanted to read. Uh, they have an education section of their website, and this is not really like a go-to uh, website for me for news, but uh, I found this interesting, so I just wanted to share it with people. The title of the article, Common Core Nonfiction Reading Standards Mark the End of Literature, English Teachers Say. Concern is growing among teachers and parents that literary classics will go the way of the dinosaurs under a new set of national curricular standards. The Common Core state standards, academic benchmarks that have been adopted by 46 states, call for 12th grade reading to be 70% nonfiction or informational texts, gradually stepping up from the 50% nonfiction reading required of elementary school students. The Common Core standards focus on teaching fewer subjects in greater depth, replacing the melange of educational expectations that vary widely across districts and states. Proponents of the standards, like the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State School Officers, say too many students are not college or career ready because they have suffered from years of easy reading and poor training in synthesizing more complex reading materials. Now, that sounds like something I could agree with synthesizing more complex reading materials, right? That sounds like a yeah. skill. But then the article goes on to say, but the new guidelines are increasingly worrying English lovers and English teachers who feel they must replace literary greats like The Great Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye with common core suggested exemplars, like the Environmental Protection Agency's recommended levels of insulation and the California Invasive Plant Council's Invasive Plant Inventory. Jamie Highfill, an eighth grade English teacher at Woodland Junior High School in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and the 2011 Arkansas Teacher of the Year, told the Washington Post that she's already had to drop short stories and a favorite literary unit to make time for essays by Malcolm Gladwell from his social behavior book, The Tipping Point. I'm struggling with this, and my students are struggling, Highfill told the Post. With the informational text, there isn't that human connection that you get with literature. And the kids are shutting down. They're getting bored. I'm seeing more and more behavior problems in my classroom than I've ever seen. So uh, the article goes on. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, I, I mean, I've done this in my own life plenty, undervaluing um, fiction. But the alternatives that Common Core is presenting, I mean, talk about shutting people off from... The EPA manual on insulation. I mean, that's like something you would make up to, uh, like, torture uh, terrorists in Guantanamo. That, well, that's... That, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's actually something that I, I saw this article while I was doing research, and I had to share that because I've used that example a couple times on the show saying, yeah, instead of reading Animal Farm, kids are now reading EPA manuals. And I, I, I caught myself a couple of times and I said, wait a minute, am I making that up? Did I hear Alex Jones say that? <laughs> do, do I need to, I need to fact check that? So then when I, come, I came across here, I felt uh, this article here, I felt very vindicated. So I wanted to share that. So that's what's happening to whatever exposure there had traditionally been in schools, um, kids are being put in more and more of a box. And when they have to read this informational text in which they have no interest, what is that doing for the motivation or, again, the willingness to read, to explore? 
Yeah, well, even as a student myself, I learned to hate books, and, and we weren't yep. getting the EPA manual. We were getting Great Gatsby and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't read a single book until I was about 25 just because I associated it with uh, something you know tedious and, and torturesome. Oh, yeah. Same here. I completely agree with that. So how has your experience changed with this one since uh, you took your own children out of school? Um, the, you know, I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, the quantity of stuff that they're, they're getting too exposed, they're, they're exposed to, we, we unschool, mm-hmm. um, you know, so right now the kids, uh, you know, spend a lot of time playing Minecraft and just playing. They're young. My, my oldest daughter has, you know, taken a shine to baking, yeah. uh, and to cooking. So that's something that she wouldn't have uh, had much uh, time to do in school. No. You know, so she's, she's nine years old. And so, you know, on the weekend we drive her to the grocery store. And she makes us wait in the car, and then she goes and does grocery shopping, and then comes back and and makes some you know makes dessert uh, for the evening. And it's something that you know someone would be, uh, you know, the, the homeschooling stories where people are, uh, you know, making their own par- particle reactors and stuff like that. Yeah, um, is is kind of fantasy. But but at this point, you know, they're, they're sort of um, exploring sort of practical things like that. Yesterday they went uh, and took hammers and destroyed an anthill, um, to see what would happen. So, you know, those are the kind of things that I, you know, that I think they're, they're getting that they wouldn't really see in school. Um, I had another kind of odd story is the first, uh, the first year I, I started unschooling or homeschooling. Um, the, my daughter went for half a year at a public school and then we, we pulled her out and she still had to take a standardized test that year. Yeah. And I'm looking through it and, um, there's these whole series of questions about the history of Squanto the Indian. And okay. I, I just sort of. I looked over at my daughter and I said, there's no way that you can ever uh, pass this. Uh, you know, there's a huge section on Squanto the Indian. And she's like, well, I know exactly who Squanto the Indian is. And, um, you know, she told me all about it. But for some reason, the school had, you know, had decided to spend this great amount of time on this very obscure, you know, tertiary character in history. Um and obviously they did it because they knew it was going to be on the the state standardized test. And just to think of how they prioritized what the kids were going to be exposed to just seemed kind of ridiculous at that point. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking my mind started to race when you said Squanto the Indian, because there is actually a fast, this is just a footnote, fascinating story about Squanto, that he actually... Uh, had been kidnapped by European fishermen and brought to Europe. And at the time the pilgrims encountered him, he had actually spent most of his life in Europe and then had kind of bought his freedom or uh, somebody else had bought him his freedom and he returned uh, to where he was from, which is why he was actually so excited to see these filthy British people show up and they interpreted it as uh, an act of God. Uh, that he was put there to essentially help them, and everything that was Native American in the New World had been put there by God to help them. Mm. But he actually had this fascinating uh, life prior to that, and just ran into the the pilgrims by chance. And we actually talked about it in a Thanksgiving show a few years ago. So Google Squanto if you're interested in that story. But that's what I thought okay. of. That's interesting that it came up. And that's a shame because I'm sure the the truer story um, or the more interesting story, even if it turned out not to be true, the story that would 
spark up more interest in the subject of history, even if it raised uncomfortable questions in young people, is surely omitted from the standardized test. I, I'm I'm sure it is. I can't recall, but yeah, but I, I just picked out that example because it just seems like such a um, a singular story mm. to, to devote so much of of their history uh, learning to. Oh yeah, I'm sure the people who wrote that test had no idea about anything I just said. I never learned it in school. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, another kind of uh, an omission. I was talking to a history teacher in high school, and um, I was asking them if, if they taught about Operation Starvation in um, World War II, mm -hmm. which were the sanctions that that we placed on that we that the United States placed on the Japanese, and it. Um, they estimated a body count of about 10 million uh, through that military operation. And right. he, he was like, oh, no, we wouldn't teach that. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't teach Hiroshima either. And then he finally admitted that they just stopped teaching World War II altogether uh, as they don't consider it uh, an American war anymore. What? I thought World War II is usually like the big finish. Yeah, no, that's, that's how I thought of it. But he said they're going to stop teaching it. And, you know, this is just one teacher in one school, so I don't know if that's uh, a trend line across the country. Yeah. I, I found that really interesting. Yeah, we're, we're actually coming to history. That's going to be one of our arguments oh, yeah, today. Okay. But, yeah, I, I think of World War II as like the big happy ending with the ticker tape parades and the baby boomers and the defeat of fascism, Nazism, wrapped up nice and neat before we get too close to Vietnam. Uh, that, I, I mean, I used to look at a lot of curricula for secondary uh, American history, and Vietnam is always admitted, usually uh, under the justification that there isn't enough time. So World War II has uh, provided a nice happy ending, but that's interesting that schools might start omitting that. It's a pretty key event in American history for a number of reasons. I want to move on to the third one? Uh, sure. Unless unless you wanted to skip ahead to history and then come back to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's play. actually do that. Uh, the argument for history. Most history, as it is taught in schools, is political history. Almost every event described is either the work of a president or of a war. Even when non-government events are covered, such as the Great Depression or the Million Man March, the story usually hinges on how the government responded. Schools narrow the scope of history to government and usually only portray a positive view of the student's own government. For example, America's children learn that America is great. For example, students probably don't learn the true body counts of American wars or how people have been incarcerated in the prison system. Real history, though, also includes individual achievement, business, consumption trends, technology, art and media, music, communication, religion, philosophy, scientific discovery, food, and fun. History without a school approach could vastly and widely open up education to be more inclusive and more expansive, providing everyone with a more complete and valuable knowledge of history. Amen. You know, for me, this was one of the greatest stolen opportunities of school how history is taught. And I remember elementary school being filled with these magical moving stories of these almost uh, superhuman men who had great vision 
the George Washingtons, the Abraham Lincolns. And mm -hmm. in our most formative and most impressionable years, we're given this mythology that we can capture and take with us to like middle school. And at that point, history becomes so excruciatingly boring with worksheets and vocabulary words and reading out of textbooks. that By the time most people graduate, they never want to look at that subject again. And the last time I checked, the stats were one in six Americans have some educational experience, formal educational experience with history after high school. So what is captured for most people is that mythology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, they, you know, it, it's, it's very convenient, I think, for the, the, the government to, to teach that the, the entire history is of death and politics. Yeah. And that, that just makes us so, um, so used to it in a way, I think. We don't, you know, look at the, the million people we've, we've killed in Iraq and sort of shame our government or, you know, sort of have, I don't know, some collective guilt or, or, or be repulsed by it. Um, and maybe that's because, you know, we've been, we've been taught that all of history is, um, you know, presidents and killing people. Yeah, I, even in college, uh, I, I've gone back and looked at my notes, and even in college where there was a much more realistic version of American history presented, everything was still organized around presidential administrations. Like, yeah, that's no how we would break things uh, up. would do by, like, what technology uh, was used at the time or uh, what food was consumed, you know, which could actually, you know, be, you know, even what people, you know, like consumer trends would probably tell you more about how people lived and, and events of the day yeah. than what, what presidents did. So uh, an interesting side note here. When we talked before, you said that you are working your way through School Sucks podcast from the beginning. And you are right now somewhere around what I was doing in early 2013. Uh, yeah, I think I'm on episode 158. Wait till you get to this character named uh, Thaddeus Russell. He's coming up around episode 200. And then at the beginning of last year, we actually started doing uh, a series together that had 10 episodes in it. Do you, do you know that name? I know the name, but I don't know uh, what he's done. Okay, so he wrote a book called The Renegade History of the United States. And this goes like a step beyond... The work of somebody like Howard Zinn, who tried to create more of a social history. And I remember it was actually my college history professor who was organizing lessons around presidential administrations that first introduced me to the book. I had started to really enjoy history and got a copy of that book right at the right time. And it absolutely changed my whole attitude because I realized that this was not a subject that was taught like science or math. It's, this is a subject that has multiple perspectives, multiple lenses. Uh, Thaddeus Russell adds another one with what is a renegade history. And what his argument is, it's basically the ne'er-do-wells, the criminals that maintain freedom. In, in society. So it's a very, very interesting read. But cool. to see all the different ways that history can be examined is very, very important and potentially very, very enriching if somebody already has an interest and a willingness in the subject. But we don't get that in school. We get the political history. Once upon a time, there was a problem. The chapter begins, and then that chapter concludes, and the government solved it, basically, chapter after chapter. 
Yeah, so there's that's sort of there's two two things in there. One of them is you know reading history for enjoyment because mm-hmm. it is it is fascinating, and so there's this uh, great amount of pleasure that people can have in uh, examining history. But then sort of like what you the, the latter part that we were just saying, it's also been used as a conditioning tool to to make it so every time that there's a problem, uh, that we beg for government to come fix. Absolutely, yeah. There's a great track record for that according to the textbooks. So uh, let's jump back to the third one, which was the argument for free play. Free play is when children, without external restrictions or guidance, design their own activity and modes of play. It can be wonderful in developing independence, creativity, negotiating skills, interpersonal skills, and fun. School kids live under constant direction and surveillance. Their only opportunity for free play during school are the scraps of time given at recess. Unsurprisingly, most kids' favorite school time activity. It seems to be a growing trend for parents to further shorten free play by signing their kids up for organized sports and activities after school and on the weekends, further putting them in another system where they wear uniforms and follow the instructions of adult, uh, an adult. Excuse me. Home education provides much more time and opportunity for free play. What made you want to add this one? Because I think this is a really important one. You know, I had just finished reading uh, Peter Gray's Free to Learn, which I, I see you pasted in here. Yeah. And I wish Peter Gray would take the first chapter of the book, like the first 40 pages, and make it into a, a mini book, you know, and I'd buy, I'd buy probably five dozen of them and just hand them out on the street corner. Um, but the trend, you know, the trend is just growing and growing. Um, I live in a neighborhood full of kids. And right now, as, as May approaches, uh, all the conversation is, um, you know, what camps are you going to sign your kid up for? You know, because every all these adults are, are terrified of, of just letting them loose and, and play by themselves. You know, I was at a cocktail party about a week ago when I was talking to another parent. And he said he's having trouble getting his son to join the chess club, even though he really likes chess. And his son said he's just... Um, you know, doesn't want to be watched over by an adult. Nice. Um, and so I dropped a big load of Peter Gray on him and, you know, basically said all of this about the value of free play and uh, how much kids like to, you know, uh, you know, be their own authorities and, and do things themselves. And um, the the father looked back at me and he said, uh, uh, no, my son's wrong. He doesn't understand. He's not doing it right. And, you know, my heart just dropped when it wasn't it wasn't the the lack of free play or the authority that was the problem. It was his son that was defective. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting that the son would be so able. How old was the boy? He's nine, uh, seven, rather seven years old. And do you feel like he articulated his problem as clearly as you described it? I don't want to be watched over. Yeah, he didn't. I forget exactly how he said it, but it was he didn't want to be like in the club. He just he wanted just to play. Well, yeah, I mean, if he was able to express himself that clearly at that age, that's a real mystery, you know, as to how he learned to do that. And, you know, kudos to him for being able to do that in a family where the father just says, oh, yeah, my son expressed, you know, his feelings and needs, but he's wrong. (laughs) You know, that's pretty amazing. This guy, uh, he lives across the street from me. Um, He can sort of see me come in because I've, I've lived... I've been bathing in this material for so long yeah. uh, that he knows when to sort of walk away um, when, you know, when I begin discussing what I think uh, parenting is or what education is. Minesweeper. 
He knows where to put the flags so he doesn't get blown yeah. up. Yep, exactly. Yep, I know a lot of people like that, really, from my own uh, suboptimal past communication strategies. Yeah. They know and how he's to actually, tiptoe around. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's going to send his um, two children to essentially what is latchkey. So they go to, it's called Kaleidoscope here, but after school, they, they, they spend another like two or three hours in like an after school school. Yeah. And they'll, for, so for the summer, they're going to send, uh, they're going to send their kids to this after school school, but it's going to be all day long. So it's, it's just more school. Oh. <laughs> you know, I just look at it and I, I feel sad and, and like a little repulsed. And yeah, absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't know what I, you know, I can't do anything. You know, I'm, li- I try to live by the best example. Exactly. Yeah. That's but the only advice think- I could give. Yeah. People just think we're we're sort of half insane when we tell them what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I mean, people find it controversial that my wife doesn't go to work; that you know she parents full time. So that's even, especially up when I was living in Massachusetts, that used to be. Um, you know, people would look at me cross-eyed when you know you say my wife's not going to uh, go to work. Oh, because that's such a traditionalist, non-progressive family yeah. uh, system, right? I did want to add, just as a resource for the people listening, there's an article on Aeon called The Play Deficit that Peter Gray wrote for, for maybe those who don't have time for the whole book. And um, there's another piece called, uh, it's uh, available online as a PDF, journalofplay.org, Decline of Play, which is also by Peter Gray. But I did just want to share a couple paragraphs from uh, that article he, as you said, he wrote uh, Free to Learn in 2013, and that was a book where he documented the, the changes in uh, free play over really the latter half of the 20th century. And he also puts forward this argument that there has been, at the very least, a correlation in the rise of mental disorders as uh, you know, play has declined. Mm-hmm. So the excerpt from the Aeon article... Over the same decades that children's play has been declining, childhood mental disorders have been increasing. It's not just that we're seeing disorders that we overlooked before. Clinical questionnaires aimed at assessing anxiety and depression, for example, have been given in unchanged form to normative groups of school children in the U.S. ever since the 1950s. Analysis of the results reveal a continuous, essentially linear increase in anxiety and depression in young people over the decades such that the rates of what today would be diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder and major depression are five to eight times what they were in the 1950s. Over the same period, the suicide rate for young people aged 15 to 24 has more than doubled, and for uh, that for children under age 15 has quadrupled. The decline in opportunity to play has also been accompanied by a decline in empathy and a rise in narcissism both of which have been assessed since the ni- late 1970s with standard questionnaires given to normative samples of college students. Empathy refers to the ability and tendency to see from another person's point of view and experience what that person experiences. Narcissism refers to inflated self-regard, coupled with a lack of concern for others and inability to connect emotionally with others. A decline of empathy and a rise of narcissism are exactly what we would expect to see in children who have little opportunity to play socially. Children can't learn these social skills and values in school because school is an authoritarian, not a democratic setting. School fosters competition, not cooperation, and children there are not free to quit when others fail to respect their needs 
and wishes. So I agree with most of what he said, and he does give a little more information in this other piece, The Decline of Play, which is a 21-page PDF uh, about Mm -hmm. uh, the question of the correlation between increase in mental illness and the decline of play. So he goes into more detail, but he, he gives a couple of ways that play promotes children's mental health in that PDF as well, one being that in play, children develop intrinsic interests and competencies, which uh, obviously comes from you know doing something that you have a willingness to do. And another one is uh, children learn how to make decisions, solve problems, exert self-control, and follow rules. Rules that are necessary in certain cases for you know people getting certain needs met, for a certain level of social order, that have more of a justification, we could say, than uh, that an authority figure uttered because I said so. So, you know, the universe has rules. Reality has rules. They're good to know. But kids don't really get respect for that because it's always just like, well, what does the authority say? Who can tell me what to do? Who can explain this? So they don't learn, you know, or, or don't learn as easily the real rules of the world. Yeah, they also, I mean, they don't get to um, see healthy, like, peer relationships, I think, sure. with um, constant school, or even Peter Gray goes well into um, the soccer practice and all the activities that kids are signed up for now, that even though, you know, it, it looks like playing, you know, they're still wearing uniforms, they're still being told what to do. Uh, but when they're left on their own, they have to act as peers, and they have to negotiate, and they have to... Um, take into account other people's feelings uh, because there's no, there's no one binding them uh, to the play activity. Right. And that's, that's exactly where the empathy comes from. I think Peter probably could have even said it a little bit clearer is that's where the empathy comes from is when, when, when they actually have to negotiate and account for uh, uh, how other people are feeling. Sure. Let's see. I'm actually now just kind of scanning through it, looking for a better uh, example of him stating that, but He does say here, in play, children learn how to make decisions, solve problems, exert self-control, and follow rules. If the rise of anxiety and depression are linked to a decline in sense of personal control, then play would seem to be the perfect remedy. A fundamental characteristic of play, as noted earlier, is that it is directed and controlled by the players themselves. In school and in other adult-directed activities, adults decide what children should do and how they should do it and adults solve the problems that arise. But in play, children themselves must decide what to do and how, and must solve their own problems, including those that arise within the play frame, how to best capture the monster, for example, and those that arise from outside the play frame, perhaps what to do about Mary's skin knee or Johnny's lost shoes. In play, children learn to control their own lives and manage the physical and social environment around them, In play, they also learn and practice many of the skills that are central to life in their culture and thereby develop competence and confidence and feel more efficacious and feel more in control. Now, I'm adding that to the end because the more in control you feel, the more efficacious you feel, the more you Mm -hmm. probably have available mental space-wise to devote to what's going on for others, and that is essentially the beginning of empathy. And are you familiar with Lenore Skenazy? Uh No, I've never heard that name before. Uh, she has a blog called Free Range Kids, and her story was she she 
came on the scene with the title given to her by the mainstream media, World's Worst Mother, because she let uh, an eight-year-old ride the subway in New York by himself. And this, this wasn't like the result of uh, a flipped coin. This was something that they had prepared for, that they had practiced together, and that he wanted to do, and she trusted him to do. Right. I mean, one of the biggest things being communicated to kids by teachers, by parents, by coaches in sports, by authority figures in general is, hey, I don't trust you. There's no way someone your age could ever be considered trustworthy. And that's really, really detrimental to most kids. Right. Because it takes away from yeah. confidence. It takes away from their sense of competence and efficacy as well. And they grow up with that. And because they're so stuck in that mindset of what is the authority, is the authority watching? Are they going to tell me what to do? What are the rules? Uh, that continues right into adulthood. Yeah, it seems like anytime you hear the story of a great person who um, had great success, uh, there's always a story about how they were trusted to do things when they were young. Mm. Um, like Richard Branson, for example, the uh, the Virgin Airlines guy, uh, famously says that um, his, his mother dr drove him like seven hours away in England and made him uh, get home by himself when he was four years old. <laughs> but, uh, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. You know, just, just sort of stories like that. You hear, you know, even hear you know, about the legend of uh, like people like uh, Benjamin Franklin and yeah. George Washington. Yeah. Gatto you know, about... does that in the underground history. And I, I don't necessarily approve of his choice of heroes. I know Lincoln is in there. David Farragut's in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a powerful case to make, right? Yeah. So if, if, if the great people do things independently as, you know, as children, uh, wouldn't that naturally mean we should let our children do things on their own? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's been Lenore Skenazy's big push, you know, ever since she was labeled the world's worst mom is, well, maybe I seem bad, uh, in this world where we, she calls it bubble wrapping our kids. You know, where CPS is getting called because two kids are walking home uh, from the park, you know, a matter of three or four blocks by themselves and the police stop. Yeah, and that's the, kids the are put... uh, Maryland story. Uh, yeah, well, that's happened in, in, in numerous places. I, I think the most recent example was in Maryland. Yeah, that's like just... the distrust for children and even the distrust for parents is becoming a very strong part of the culture. Yeah, so the um, I told you that story about how my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter, loves to go go grocery shopping by herself. Right. And we we actually we're, we're quite uh, we're not nervous that uh, she's going to be captured or anything. We're we're nervous that somebody's going to call the police on us for yeah. um, you know letting us letting her uh, roam a, a grocery store by herself. Yeah, Th that would seem like a fairly safe place for me to try that out. How does she do with that? Well, she she loves it. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, you know, and she insists on using her own money and, you know, it's sort of a very empowering experience for her to, I, you know, yeah. to be left alone and, uh, be independent. I remember at that age, and I've done a lot of journaling on, on being that age lately, and I might not have had the words for it then, but there was something exciting about being given trust or being asked to take responsibility or being asked to help out in a way that was meaningful because it was like all very empowering and in the rest of life uh and you know my my dad was was pretty good about that um mm -hmm. but in the rest of life there were no real opportunities to feel that way that i can remember yeah, well, anyway if if you um 
have you you've have you seen the movie the uh, a christmas story yes not for probably 20 years but i have seen it yeah well the the, the sort of the, the climax uh of the whole movie is when um ralphie's dad uh asked him to help with uh changing the tire right right and uh you know, uh, you've never, you know, Ralphie is not as, uh, thrilled and as excited as that, you know, until that point, you know, where he gets to help his dad do something real. Yeah. There's a, there's a nice update of that too. I just watched this movie on Netflix last night called chef. Have you ever heard of chef? No. Uh, it's John Favreau and he's got a little boy. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's like nine or 10. And, um, he's run out of the restaurant business because of a, a really negative review from a really powerful food critic. And he winds up starting a food truck and working it with his 10-year-old son. And, you know, there's some tension in their relationship uh, at first, but the way it comes together as the movie goes on is is really, really nice. And it, it demonstrates, like, a lot of trust in um, this very young boy and in, in the way their relationship grows. So that's a nice update to the Christmas story. It's called Chef. Oh, okay. Would it be appropriate for my family? Mm, no. <laughs> no? Okay. It's, on, it's on the edge. I mean, that's up to you. You could screen it first, and then you could you could decide. You know, I would show it. Uh, this is just me. This is completely subjective. I would show it to, like, an 11- or 12-year-old boy. I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, my nephew. I don't know. Screen it. There's some, there's some adult humor, sexual humor, strong language, stuff like that. Okay. So, all right. Well, I think, uh, yeah, that concludes play. And we've got uh, two more to go before we wrap up this first show. The fifth one that I wanted to talk about was interesting, potentially controversial. The argument for religion or atheism. Home education allows parents to teach their children the fundamentals of how they believe reality and ethics exist in the world. At school, knowledge is to be taught with very little context of how reality or ethics are believed to exist in the world. This is a fairly large omission. Schools presume to teach what exists in the world and how it works while purposefully ignoring how we understand reality and morality itself. However your sense of aesthetics lie, it should be a right for parents to present their worldview to their children. Some worry that parents will teach misinformation, but rarely give the school the same scrutiny. Would we fault a Hindu for wanting to teach their kids about Hindu practices or a Buddhist for teaching their kids how to meditate? The same can be said for teaching atheism. At public school, each day is started with a prayer to the state and God called the Pledge of Allegiance. While most public schools don't promote a religious agenda, it is still absolutely taboo to actively suggest God doesn't exist or that reality is what we view with our senses. As home educators, atheist parents who wish this belief to be a strong part of their children's education can do so freely, frequently, and explicitly. They are allowed to frame knowledge with this view of reality. Yeah, the whole um, epistemological question, I mean, that was a word I learned well after I was out of school. You know, yeah. how do not just what exists, but how do we know? Right. Well, it's in the book or the teacher said so or this is all done. This has all been figured out. All you have to do is sponge up this information and then wring it out onto a test. And you can say you knew it, too. But there's never any question of how do we obtain knowledge of reality or morality? Yeah. Well, just just think of if, if we were to think from the atheist point of view, how controversial it would be. 
if the teacher suggested that there wasn't a God. That would be probably like a lynchable offense sure. in, yeah. in 2000, 2015. I really struggled with this one because for probably, I don't know, some plurality of homeschoolers, you know, it's not the 54 cases for homeschooling. It's the one case for homeschooling, Absolutely, which is, you know, yeah. we want to teach them, you know, don't want to teach them evolution. I didn't want to sort of stand up uh, for that, um, yeah. that view. But it wasn't until I, I, I sort of applied it to myself that I realized um, that that has to be, you know, part part of the education. You know, my, my kids have to understand how reality is, how we understand, you know, sort of that, yeah, again, that sort of metaphysics and uh, uh, epistemological uh, view of, of using your senses and, um, you know, knowing objective reality. Sure. So, you know, I, I would love if, if someone wanted to help me with this one uh, at some point, I would I would appreciate the uh, the input because I think it could be stronger. But I, I do think it's, you know, it's an important omission. Absolutely. Final one that I wanted to uh, discuss today, and this one spreads into many of the other ones. I think this is really important. The argument for family. When kids go to school, they are separated from their families for seven or eight hours a day, five days per week. Some kids go to a latchkey type program and might be gone for 11 hours per day. Most people know many families who need to race through every day, left with the scraps of time left over from the school schedule, racing through a morning routine to get to school or the bus stop and having a brief night together of maybe just a few hours. These few hours might be filled with dinner, homework, and getting ready for an early bedtime so they can be sure to get up in the morning. This leaves families with just the weekend to spend together, which can be filled with organized sports and dad going golfing anyway. I've seen families like this. The children place a massive burden on their schedule and they barely get to see them. I wondered why they bothered having children in the first place. School isolates children from their families and can cripple the relationship children have with their parents and siblings. Children who do not go to school can experience richer family interactions more frequently and on a daily basis. And it's good for parents. Can you imagine anyone on their deathbed wishing they had missed the majority of time they could have spent with their kids when they were growing up? I can't. Yeah, I also remember from my childhood, you know, I mean, there was me and two younger brothers, and we all went to school. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad sometimes worked like, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. So there was actually, and this is kind of overlooked, uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, to have a good time on the weekend, right? Quality yeah, time yeah. was <laughs> almost impossible, because we had to, like, there was all this tension around, are we going to be able to maximize the enjoyment of leisure time? You know, I, and, and I, I think, you know, part of that was, was on my dad, you know, like, he would plan these things, and he would, you know, take us to Boston to Red Sox games and all that stuff. And like, if something went wrong, it would just be like, well, shit, you know, this is the only chance we have for the next five or six days. So we're going to fight, or we're going to resist you know it was I, I just saw how important that quality time was to him and i don't think he knew another way to live his life you know to to work less to sacrifice maybe that part more or to balance better yeah. so it, it seemed like there was like this huge pressure uh on whatever leisure time we had 
Yeah, and it's it's a, it's like a lose lose situation, right? It's bad for the kids, bad for the adults. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this whole school setting uh, creates a tremendous amount of stress in families generally, right? You talk about the strain that it puts on parent child relationships, but every day, I remember being woken up by my mother saying, you got to get up, you got to get up. That, that was how our day yeah. started five days a week, you know? Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. And it builds yeah, resentment. Yeah, go ahead. And then even, you know, a parent who is, uh, this is kind of a digression, a parent who's considered uh, active in their their kid's education usually means they're um, harping on them for grades, you know, or nagging them to do their homework. Yeah. So even the day-to-day experience, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, your, the mother uh, screaming at the kid to get up, hurry up, you know, comb your hair, uh, you know, eat the cereal, get on the bus. And then the whole time home, you know, it's like, uh, especially if they go to the latchkey or whatever, uh, or we have the super fun home- homework bus, which is uh, another service uh, parents around here use to make sure their kids don't get home until six o'clock. What is that? What is the homework bus? That sounds awful. Yeah. It's, it's a super cool homework bus. <laughs> yeah. No, it does. Uh, it's a, it's a place where you, after school, the kids go and they do their homework. Um, okay. They're not actually doing they, it on a bus. Yeah. I'm not sure why it's called the bus. I think cause they, they, um, they get bussed over or something. Okay. Um, cause I would rename <laughs> it the motion sickness bus. If people yeah. were forced to like sit there and look down and write while something was driving them around. But then if you, you know, if you, the kids have to, kids in my neighborhood all have to get up at 530 in the morning to make the bus. So that means they pretty much have to go to bed, you know, by eight uh, if they want any chance of getting some sleep. So that gives families, you know, precisely uh, 120 minutes together during the evening, um, at which point they have to prepare a meal uh, and eat it and maybe uh, also do some homework. Yeah. It's almost impossible to have a joyous uh, or joyful time with your kids like that and then as you said the weekend or vacation uh becomes a, a mad dash to pack in all that family time yeah yeah and that and, that family time is high quality yeah it can't be it can't be passive right it can't um it, it it's an amazing it was an amazing luxury actually when we took our kids out of school to not have to pack in um the whole family time in the weekend uh, yeah. you know because we eat every meal together you know we're around each other all day and uh, that way, you know, if someone wants to be alone uh, on Saturday, they, they can do that. Um, you know, this would almost be doing this call today would almost be criminal if uh, I hadn't, you know, already spent, you know, the, the weeks upon weeks with my kids. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think in uh, part of my uh, the, the, the talking about the quality of family time is, you know, I had two younger brothers. We were all within five years of each other. and We were little and, you know. It'd be the weekend. We'd get bored. And I guess we would just kind of like quietly uh, or there's unspoken agreement like, hey, you know, it would be fun if we fought with each other. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And that's what we would do. And, uh, you know, that was um, certainly uh, taking away from the quality of, uh, of family time. I wanted to add one more uh, short piece uh, that I found. Uh, it's from a website called Broadview. And it's called Student Stress Can Strain Parent-Student Relationships. I think student stress, right? Parents are plenty stressed. But um, the stress created by school, school being this wedge in the family, parents aren't helping. Parents aren't usually being uh, terribly empathetic. Um, I didn't feel like I was getting a lot of empathy during my wake-up routines or during my uh, homework routines. 
uh, from my parents. So, you know, they want to be, parents want to be good parents. They don't want underachieving kids. They don't want kids falling behind other kids in the neighborhood, having not so great college opportunities. So they're stressing themselves out. And that stress is translating to kids very easily, uh, especially uh, high school students. They're getting plenty of stress from society and school as well. Uh, so I just want to read this really quickly. Sophomore okay. Katie Burke arrives home after Pilates class with math homework, an English essay, history notes, and symposium due the next day, but only wants to finish it all and go to sleep rather than telling her parents about her day. This, uh, the reason why I picked this, by the way, is it really reminded me of the tutoring that I used to do with these really uh, rich overachievers in uh, uh, the greater Boston area. A full day at school followed by lots of homework when arriving home can put teens under stress, causing relationships with parents to become strained. Quote, the way teenagers grow quickly with hormones and their intellectual capacity expanding and seeing things in a particular way clashes with parents' certain worries and concerns with safety, says family psychologist Stacy Schuster. Stress can set off a series of chemical reactions, which release hormones that are designed to try and suppress these reactions. Quote, I am especially snappy at my parents during the week because I do not get any sleep, said sophomore Izzy Holland. They constantly ask me to do my chores when all I really want to do is focus on my homework. I calm down by taking a break uh, and by reading a book that's not related to school. I also separate myself from my parents or else I know I will snap. Teens who want to preserve a sense of privacy use various methods to prevent parents from seeing what they are doing on the internet. 33% of teens clear their browser history and 44% of parents say they worry about their teen's safety when they are online, according to Harris Interactive McAfee, which I'm guessing is some kind of survey. Quote, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot more exposure through the web and the internet, said Schuster. There's so much more exposure to every situation. Previous generations were more sheltered to things like that. Knowing about the world makes parents not be the final authority, unquote. Huh. Now, that's, that's an interesting one, and that's something that I, I talked about very early on School Sucks, is that most people didn't ever they live their entire lives you know we're talking about almost everybody who has existed went through this inquisitive period or this introspective period or even this rebellious period without any knowledge that there could be a support system for what they were going through you know and had to keep all of these questions or all of these frustrations inside and now yeah, yeah. there's yeah. basically a way to blurt all of that into the world and build this kind of um, spontaneous support system. Like YouTube comes to mind. You know, these high school kids and even middle school kids, they just have YouTube channels where they get on there and vent about what's going on in school or with their friends or at home. And other people see it. They have hundreds of thousands of views. There was nowhere for any of that to go when I was that age or when you were that age. And everybody yeah, who I mean came before us. Like somebody has an idea like, oh, I've got a really interesting idea. I wonder if other people think this way. You know, good luck finding them in 1550. Yeah. Well, even even uh, when we were kids, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you had one or two friends and mm -hmm. uh, to talk to, you know, and like if uh, if you were comfortable enough to even bring it up with them, 
uh, you know, what are the chances that this one person would have any sort of expertise or even be able to reflect on, you know, how you were feeling? Exactly. Uh, and now you wouldn't even have to blurt it out yourself, right? You could just go to a, a discussion forum that already has uh, a thousand posts on, you know, about people talking about how you feel. Yeah. Google, I am feeling blank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, I wouldn't have even had the, the communication skills. Like, I, I think about so many things that I went through, like middle school, high school, I wouldn't have even had the words to share that with, with somebody else out loud, you know, but why would have I uh, have even bothered trying to figure out what those words would need to be? There was nowhere for those questions or those thoughts to go. So now maybe a lot of kids are better at that kind of communication because they know that if they, you know, take the steps to communicate those feelings or needs, they could actually find answers. That just wasn't an option for us. And, yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about um, how the internet's going to ruin school, <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the great reasons there. And I already think there's, um, you know, it's even from a knowledge perspective, uh, teachers used to have to be the great gateway to information and that doesn't exist anymore. And yeah. I think people are going to realize that, especially as they, they grow up both, both emoting and, uh, learning freely online. Yeah. And I really look forward to this day where that uh, more people are realizing that. Because right now, you know, it's kind of like school does what a lot of like, I, I think of this as something like more conspiracy theorist people would say that it's trying to destroy the family, you know, like these progress and I'm not, you know, to a certain extent, I believe this, right, that it's the progressive movement was, um, at least earlier in the 20th century about, you know, breaking up family units, but school does that just, you know, by it, it's like it's natural consequence, right? Uh, the family mm -hmm. experiences school as this enormous part of their lives, right? Every day start if you have two or three kids, every day starts thinking about school. Every day ends thinking about school. The kids are in school all the time. It's a fifty-hour-a-week commitment for them. So it's this huge part of their lives over which they have no real meaningful control. Yeah, parents can go to PTA meetings. Kids have nothing like that. They don't even have a way to pretend that they're in control. So the entire family is being, you know, basically crushed in many cases by the school experience. So school is overpowering the family just by the routine itself. Yeah, and they can't see it either for, you know, it's it's such a state of nature. Yeah, that's that. true. It's and, the way it is. You, it starts to look very ridiculous once you, um, you know, take our, our mindset and, and have fully sort of integrated it into your um, your worldview. It, it just looks more and more school looks more and more ridiculous that that somebody else is making you do so much and something so bad. Yeah. Hey, you know, you just said that and it reminded me of something that you wrote that I really liked. And it's another one of the arguments, but it perfectly uh, relates to the argument for family. And it was the argument for sleep, sleeping in and staying up. And you said, for school children and their families, some stranger, the superintendent, commands that everyone wake up at the same time. And it's often too early for most people. And because everybody has to get up at the same time, it usually means everyone has to go to bed at basically the same time if one wants a decent chance of getting enough sleep, which almost no teenagers do. 
why would a total stranger be able to command you, your children, your spouse, and a couple thousand of your neighbors when to go to bed and when to get up? Plus, it's not uncommon for kids, especially teenagers, to not get enough sleep. Yeah, I've seen hour, like uh, numbers like nine hours for the average active teenager. And you know, when I used to talk to kids, they were telling me five, six, sometimes less than five, because a lot of these kids worked too. Yeah. Um, with home education, individuals, not unknown distant superintendents, get to decide when and how much sleep occurs. And kids also have the possibility of having a schedule that kind of lines up with their natural circadian rhythms, which is probably a nice thing for health. Yeah. I mean, isn't it kind of silly that uh, someone, which, you know, me, would have to write that down on a piece of paper? Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that, is, that a stranger should, shouldn't dictate when everybody gets to go to bed and, and wake up. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's pathetic in a way. All these people are volunteering to be commanded like this. But it's, it's, volunteering it's, is an interesting word because it goes back to what you said just a couple minutes ago in that most people have never even been able to like put their finger on it and say, oh, wait a minute, it's this, it's school. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. this is what's screwing us all up. <laughs> How did we not see well, it's... it? It's such a huge <laughs> overpowering part of our lives. Uh, boy, shame on us for missing this. Most people just don't see it, and that's um, one of the reasons why I really hope you get some traction with these uh, 54 arguments. And, um, you know, I did uh, part of my part today, but I'm going to do more to help spread this uh, as far and wide as possible because it's very easy to read through. There's also a podcast. It's very shareable. Uh, people can pick and choose. You know, they can kind of tailor their own argument based on who they might be talking to. A lot of people have to have these conversations with family. You know, what? And yeah. you, like maybe the kind of conversation that you need to have with your neighbor if he ever stops playing Minesweeper with you and actually gets curious about what you're doing because he sees that your family is happy and fulfilled. A production note: We were planning to do twelve today. But we've been at it now for an hour and a half. So I think we could maybe hold off uh, on the rest until maybe a little later in the week. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you writing this and recording it as a podcast and uh, sharing it on School Sucks. Well, thanks so much. This has been a delight. Looking forward to the next session. For listening. If you enjoyed the show, please help us out by leaving a positive review on iTunes. If you were angered by the show, please help us out by leaving negative reviews everywhere. If you think this is an important message for students, for parents, or for the future of intellectual freedom, please consider supporting us. SchoolSucksProject.com slash AV. For $6 a month, you'll get access to hundreds of additional hours of content while helping us grow and spread this message further.